Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Hey, I'm really excited about today's guest. About a year ago, we had the boss on, and today we have the ultimate underboss, Stevie Van Zandt. His first big break came in the mid-70s as Bruce Springsteen's right-hand man, guitarist, and occasional co-producer in the E Street Band. Later, he seamlessly made the jump to acting as one of Tony Soprano's key consigliere's Sill on The Sopranos. Recently, Van Zant released his memoir, Unrequited Infatuations, which details his career over the past 50 years, delving, of course, into the E Street Band, but also into his endeavors as a producer, actor, solo artist, and activist, including his 1985 stand against South Africa's oppressive regime when he created Artists United Against Apartheid and recorded the protest song Sun City, which includes cameos from a slew of artists like U2, Melly Mel, Run DMC, and Miles Davis. On today's episode, Bruce Hedlund talks to Van Zant about the budding New Jersey rock and roll scene in the 60s and what it was like recording with legendary R&B singers like Ronnie Spector and Darlene Love. He also reminisces about first meeting Springsteen who Van Zant says he saw go from a shy kid who was too timid to speak to one of the greatest entertainers of our time. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Hedlum with Stevie Van Zant. Well, thank you, first of all, so much for doing this. My pleasure. You were singer, songwriter, arranger, producer, award-winning actor, a creator of, and I didn't realize this, the two best channels on satellite radio. You also created Outlaw Country as well as Underground Garage. Yeah. A member of the East Street Band. And now you're an author. You're the author of a new book, Unrequited Infatuations. And there's a lot of requited 
infatuations in the book and some unrequited. We're going to talk about them both because it's a, it's a theme that runs through the book. And you call yourself a consigliere. That so many times in your life, you seem to be in this position of having to say something to somebody that is so obviously in their self-interest and they can't quite see it. Were you always that kind of guy? Were you always the guy that wasn't afraid to give advice? It's certainly, I I feel, part of the obligation of being somebody's friend. You know, so it certainly starts there. But as you suggest, I I have done that with people who are not friends. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And I didn't know this part of my brain existed, and I, I talk about that in the book. I mean, I went through the 60s. Not a political thought in my head. Now, can you imagine such a thing? You know, there was a few things going on in the 60s, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I ignored all of it. It didn't hit me till the 80s, all right? Which, so I'm already, uh, what am I by then? I'm in my 30s. And suddenly, I, I just discovered this other part of my brain that has... Uh, the ability to reason and and and, uh, uh, and see logical solutions to complicated problems, which was a big surprise to me because I, I live in chaos all the time and, and uh, in my head. And I think every artist does. I think that's partly why an artist becomes an artist, I believe, to try and make some order out of the chaos, you know, something tangible. You can see it touch it you know yeah that's so that's such a relief you know when you walk around with all this crazy shit in your head to actually be able to see your work and see that you exist you know some proof of your existence you know so i guess to to quote hyman roth or to misquote him this is not the business you chose the business chose you this is this is a role you figured out for yourself yeah, and, and, and you know, when growing up in the Renaissance, as I did, you really had to have a distinct identity uh, as an artist. And that would change come the 70s, you know, the hybrids would begin. Mm-hmm. We no longer were a monoculture, uh, and we were very much a monoculture in the 60s, surprisingly, mm-hmm. uh, or, or, or musically. Um, and I would say even artistically, uh, you know, possibly, you could make an argument for that. that we were, you know, we all kind of like the same art, you know. Uh, in a way. You bring up a good point. I, I wanted to ask you, so many musicians I've talked to talk about seeing the Beatles for the first time on the Ed Sullivan show. But you you had a take that I've never I've never heard anybody else have. When you saw them, there was something that you saw that you loved. Well, I don't know how different it was from everybody else, but I saw, you know, hope from my life, which uh, had not been very clear at that point. I just was rejecting everything society was offering me as options. And suddenly it was this really new world. You know, I'd never seen a band before. You didn't see four or five guys playing and singing. I mean, you just it didn't exist. A band is, uh, is communicating. It's not, it's not me, it's us. It's the gang, it's the, it's the posse, it's, it's the family, it's, the, it's friendship. And they do ultimately communicate community, and that's what attracted me. And I and I and I always combine it with the Rolling Stones coming four months later, because the Beatles were so good and so different. You know, they just were perfect, perfect harmony. You know, everything—the hair, the clothes—it was all new, all new. I never seen anything like it. 
But it sure was exciting. Um, but then four months later, here come the Rolling Stones, and they're dressing like whatever they feel like. Their hair is not perfect, except for Brian Jones. Uh, you know, there's no harmony to speak of. And they make it look easier than it is. You know, they're, they're, they're very casual about it. Mm-hmm. The most impressive thing to me, and, and I think the, the, the biggest moment, was seeing that Mick Jagger uh, did not smile. Mm-hmm. And um, this was uh, another another epiphany, you know, that 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 said, this isn't show business, because I wasn't interested in show business then. I like it now, but uh, I, I didn't back then. You know, you're building your identity, and you are what you like, you know. And so the fact that he didn't smile said, this is not show business. This is a this is a lifestyle. And I and I said I want I want I want that lifestyle. It's interesting. The Stones made it seem like a more of a possibility, though. Yeah, they were really the first punk band. They did exactly what the punks did in the seventies, which was make it look easy, mm-hmm. learn three chords, and 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 you know make a record. Yeah. Forget about all that yes and rush, you know, and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer stuff, you know. Just play a couple chords and turn it up, you know. See, see, that was the stuff I was exposed to when I was a kid, and I never became a musician because I thought, eh, that's too hard. And that was extremely, you know, evolved, sophisticated, you know, part of the business, you know. Yeah. But uh, the Stones were, were, you know, they they were missionaries for the blues and and, and early R and B, and. Um, their great accomplishment, which nobody ever gives them credit for, uh, they were never a pop band. And the fact that they crossed over to the pop charts, you know, for 50 years <laughs> is a rather <laughs> remarkable achievement. Yeah. Was it through those British artists that you learned more about American music? Yeah. Forget it. I'd never heard of Chuck Berry. I never heard of Bo Diddley. I never really? heard of Muddy Waters. No. Why, why would I? How would I? They weren't on the radio. Not when I, mm-hmm. not when I was a teenager. All the pioneers had come and gone. Uh, blues, well, you, you never heard it. Where would you hear blues? You know, so all that stuff was brand new to me. We didn't know who who was writing what. I didn't even think about that. You know, till later, till they till they started talking about those guys. You know, and they were they were putting their influences right on their sleeves and and. and uh, and, and really promoting uh, those artists, and, 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 and thankfully they did. And uh, we got a chance to learn all about our own music. Then when did the band start for you? When did you start playing in a band? Um, I, I remember exactly because I, w- I started as a singer with a, a neighbor's uh, band called The Shadows. <laughs> and um, I remember the first thing I did on stage was sing like a Rolling Stone. So it would have been uh, 65. And then I started learning to play the guitar, and I got pretty good. I think I started my own band, uh, would have been maybe 66 in, into 67. Uh, I started uh, my band, The Source, at which point I was a you know, lead guitar and, and singer. But I started off as just a singer. We hear now so much about that Jersey scene and all the musicians that came out of it. Can you tell me what was it like when you started, when you were looking around for clubs, places to play? There's like three stages of, of, of the rock uh, life, <laughs> you know. There's the, the teenage years, which is the most fun, especially in those days, because it was just being invented 
which meant the, the adults had no idea what you were doing and would not think to try and tell you what to do. So you had complete freedom, uh, which mm-hmm. was a lot of fun. And, and, that, and that lasted until you got to the bar, the bar years, which is the second stage. And that's a whole different story. Um, they told you exactly what to play. You had to play top 40 and you had to look a certain way. And, uh, there were these, uh, show bands that were all very popular. You had to be extremely good at copying records and, and, Mm -hmm. and and make sure you did it exactly right. Before you got to the bar scene, were there like clubs that kids could go to? Because the drinking age was still 21 in New Jersey back when you were doing it. So was there a place like an 18 year old could go and hear a band? Well, it was better than that. We had teenage nightclubs. You might have had to be, I don't know, uh, well, Latin de <laughs> I don't know if there was a minimum age to get into Latin de Anyway, it was, there were teenage clubs, and upstage in Asbury Park was a, a little different because it was open from 8 o'clock at night till 5 in the morning. So I think you, had to be, you might have to, had to be 16 to get in that one. But there were clubs and, and all kinds of places to play. We were, we were working like crazy all the time. I mean, high school dances, the VFW halls, the beach clubs. <laughs> I mean, Bruce used to joke about it. He said, you know, uh, you, you know, if you wanted, if you wanted this new thing called rock and roll in your club, you had to go to the kids, you know, because, the older bands that were the show bands or, or the, uh, the wedding bands, they, they didn't get it yet. They weren't, they weren't playing <laughs> this rock stuff yet. <laughs> so, you know, if, if you want to hire a, you know, rock and roll band, you had to hire 15 year olds because they're the only ones doing it. It's a fascinating thing to think about, you know. Can I ask you just for a minute to talk about Ronnie Spector, who was, uh, a- Important, really important person in your life, and you were an important person in hers. Yeah, yeah. We, we, um, of course, uh, you know, everybody had fallen in love with with her voice, and um, and it, and in that late sixties, early seventies period, uh, really uh, became reacquainted with all of that, all of those oldies, you know, that were just you mm-hmm. know seven seven years earlier or whatever, you yeah. know. Uh, things were happening very quickly in those days. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, become reacquainted with, with all, all of that pioneer stuff. And um, just I fell in love with the whole girl group thing. What was she like in the studio? What was she like to be in that studio with that voice? I get a little nervous because, you know, it had been a while. And, and she, and she had a, I mean, the thing about all, every, all the 50s and 60s artists that I've worked with, and I work with quite a few, it's always a joy because they're just better, you know? They're better because they had to be better, you know? Mm-hmm. There's no auto-tune in those days. And there was not even that much editing. I mean, they did a little bit. But you basically had to sing a song from beginning to end and sing it in tune and sing the right melody, you know? You know what I mean? You had to be great. I mean, just, that was just the standard of all of those artists. You know, and when you work with them, it's like, oh, my God, what a joy this is, <laughs> you know? Can you think of particular people who sort of surprised you that way? It's always a surprise in a way because you're not used to it. But in her case, it was a little bit shy about what she was doing. And me and Bruce were like, Som- something's not quite 
you know, right. What, what is it? And we realized, well, she's not using the vibrato like she used to. So we reminded her, you know, you had this vibrato thing that you used to do, you know. And then it kind of came back to her, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, the, the other big surprise to me, I mean, I mean uh, was, was Gary U.S. Bonds, who, who, you know, Bruce said, let's do a record with Gary, Gary Bonds. And I and I love Gary's records, and I I had met him on the on the oldies circuit, mm-hmm. just a great guy. But I was like, you know, when you listen to Gary's records, you know, uh, quarter to three in uh, New Orleans, you know, they literally uh, like he invented the the party the party record. I mean, they sound like a party. They sound like they recorded in his garage. You know, he's just not the kind of guy you would think. You know, uh, of the great voices of the pioneers. You never would think of Gary Bonds. I'm sorry, you know. And I said to Bruce, I said, you know, Benny King's around, Chuck Jackson's around, Wilson Pickett's around, you know. At that <laughs> point, uh, uh, David Ruffin was still around, you know, Smokey Robinson, you know. Uh, you know, I think Curtis Mayfield was still around. I mean, I gave him a list of like 50 of the most incredible singers in all of all time. And he says, no, no, I want to work with Gary. I, you know, I, I really like him. And so we get in the studio with him, and the guy is just one of the greatest soul singers of all time. And I mean, you would never know it from his records. And I don't know how Bruce knew it. He went and saw him live, and maybe he got the indication from from the live show. But um, he's great on the album we did. Then we did a second album, which nobody heard. You know, we had a hit single on the first album, which was incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people heard that first album, but most people never heard the second album, which Bruce wrote the whole thing, you know, to all new Bruce Springsteen songs. And Gary is singing like you cannot believe. Incredible. It's one of my favorite productions that I've ever done. And I'm not even sure it's, it's available. I've got to see what's available these days. But anyway, Gary, I think Gary was, was, a, was a big surprise to me. And that wasn't the case with Ronnie. And that wasn't the case with, you know, Darlene Love. Uh, you know, when I, when I finally produced Darlene Love, I mean, I knew she was the greatest singer in the world. Uh, and, and, and she was and is right now, mm-hmm. you know, at the age of 80. We have to take a break, but we'll be back with more of Bruce Hedlum's conversation with Stevie Van Zandt. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, 
even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to The Tipping Point, and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off, but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with more of Stevie Van Zant and Bruce Hedlum. Let's go back a bit and talk about your relationship with Bruce Springsteen. When did you guys first meet? We met uh, on the circuit. You know, um, the day before the Beatles played Ed Sullivan, there was no bands in America. The day after, everyone everyone had a band, mm-hmm. uh, and they most of mostly mercifully stayed in the garage. But but uh, about a dozen of us got out. And we all knew each other because it was only uh, literally a dozen bands, if that, in our area. So we all knew each other. And then um, I started going to the village. It was about an hour on the bus, but it was, you know, exotic. You know, it was a, it was unusual thing to do. I don't mm-hmm. even know what would have occurred to me to do that. I never thought about this before. But anyway, I started doing it and going to the Café Wa and, 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 um, and you'd see bands all afternoon, and then I'd come home Saturday night. Um, and you would, you know, see things that were a year ahead of where New Jersey was. So I would, you know, steal what I could steal and use it with my band, you know. And I started running into Bruce, doing the same thing. You Thinking about it now, it's pretty weird, you know. we not only going to the same part of town in New York City, 
but we go in the same club. There's dozens of clubs. So uh, we got friendlier because of that and started coming up to the city together. And I'd go over to his house and started playing me songs. He was writing. He was that far ahead. He was, he was writing even then. You describe him as being very focused. Yeah, he's the most focused guy ever. He just knew exactly where he was going. He knew, he, he and nothing was going to stop him. Nothing, because there was no other, there, there really was no plan B for people like us. I mean, I, I was a little bit more, uh, you know, I was a little bit more social than he was. You know, I took a bunch of jobs. You were construction. He, he never did that. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I, I don't, I don't know if he ever had any other job. He managed to somehow make a living playing rock and roll from the very beginning, and let me tell you, that wasn't easy. Mm-hmm. He just was very, very focused on it because I think, like me, it was a, it was this incredible gift of a new world where we finally could imagine fitting in. Because as freaky as I was, he was even freakier. Mm-hmm. I, I was a little bit more social. He didn't say two words. You know, I mean, he, he, if you picture the, the grunge guys with hair down to their knees and just staring down, playing and, and, and not saying a word, that's him. And, and uh, watching this very, very shy guy turn into the world's greatest entertainer was, a, was quite a front row seat uh, to a remarkable transformation. You had this beautiful quote, which I think people who've seen him will, of course, recognize, which is, you said in concert, he wanted to provide irrefutable proof that life had meaning. Yeah. Is that a quality you saw from the beginning in him, or is that something he developed over time? Well, yeah, but, but it was rock and roll was giving us life. So, so we're passing it along. You know, we're passing the life force that that is and and was passing it through us you know in in an exchange of energy with audiences you know when he when when he became conscious which was the darkness era you know suddenly everything changed he found his identity he found an identity for what he was going to be as a performer and as uh, and and the and the show from that moment on, you know, it's very different through Born to Run. It's just an entirely different identity, an entirely different justification for existence. You know, at that point, it became very conscious. We are going to do a show with substance, basically. Mm-hmm. Substance became a thing. <laughs> you know. <laughs> now, now, this is fascinating to me because I'll bet you. Every Springsteen fan, down to the last one, thinks of his career in terms of the first two albums, and then he emerges with Born to Run. But you believe that Darkness was really his first fully realized album. Why, why do you feel that way? Yeah, the, the, the fans and, and, and even journalists, uh, they're not wrong uh, as far as Born to Run being sort of a birth of, of uh, the moment when people discovered him but what's what was fascinating to me and something i didn't really think about until i wrote the book was you know when you finally get discovered by the world it's a miracle and you better embrace it with both arms you know 
So in this case, he does a whole transformation of himself from those first two albums to becoming this front guy, you know? That's mm-hmm. why I joined the band. And a uh, whole identity change at that point to this character that, you know, uh, inhabits the entire Born to Run album. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't the big hit people think it was, but it, was, but it certainly was substantial. And what's fascinating is instead of embracing it with both arms and being thankful, he realized somewhere... Either in, somewhere in the in the touring of Born to Run, or into the writing of Darkness on the Edge of Town, somewhere in that period, he just realized that wasn't going to be him. He just wasn't that guy, and he wasn't going to be that guy the rest of his life. So it was like, sorry, folks, uh, I know I asked you to fall in love with me, <laughs> <laughs> and you did, and I really appreciate that. But I'm going to go 180 degrees here and reveal to you that I'm actually a whole different guy. And it was a very courageous thing to do. And um, hours and hours of of discussion that he had with with John Landau, I think, confirmed that the guy that we're we're running out of, what's the line, Uh, we're, we're, we're leaving this town... It's a town full of losers. Uh, we're getting yeah. out of here to win, right? I, I do love that you're asking me the lyric. I, I think you've probably heard it. <laughs> you, you may have heard it a couple times more than me. But that, but that, <laughs> that thing, that identity of, you know, grab the yeah. chick out of the, you know, from the tough town, put the chick on the motorcycle and ride out of town into the, into the sunset and, you know, let's let's go to another world thing, which was uh, mm-hmm. extremely attractive and uh, wonderful. It's Chuck Berry had the word. It's He's motivating. <laughs> oh, and, and by the way, and, and in that, this generation gap of really a tough uh, relationship with his father as part of that whole thing, very adversarial. That was the vibe. Well, boom. He says, on darkness, I'm not leaving. I'm staying. Mm -hmm. And not only that, I'm going to defend my father. And I might become my father, (laughs) you know, in some ways, you know. I'm Mm going to accept the fact that I'm I'm his son and all that goes with it, which means we're going to make this work from where I am. We're not running away. We're going to stay and fight. Mm Mm-hmm. Huge difference. And he had the talent and the balls and, you know, the band <laughs> to back it up and um, pull that off and, and take the audience with him, you know, which not, not, was not a given, man. Not a given, you know? They, they, they might have loved, they might have liked that other guy too much, you know? They liked that guy on the motorcycle. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, all of a sudden, here's a guy. Uh, was gonna work in the factory and, and uh, you know, the, you know, all that. And, uh, it was big, big difference. But he had something else, which is he had you. And, you know, you came in, uh, there's a very, I think it's a very telling scene. I think you're talking about 10th Avenue freeze out. I might be wrong because you didn't like the horns. 
Yeah, and 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 he he says we'll do something about it with a few expletives, and you say, you know, he says it loudly, so everybody pretending to be the boss, and I pretend to do it, so everybody thinks he's the boss. It's this very it's this very interesting little play you guys were doing. Yeah, it was you know at first he started calling himself the boss in in Asbury Park, and it was kind of a joke, you know, because kind of a play on Frank Sinatra, you know. Right. And I was very strong locally. I, I was a very, very strong boss in my own world. Very strong. Mm-hmm. As strong as, as he was. Uh, some would say stronger in some ways, you know. Uh, but I saw something in him that was special, and I, and I thought, you know, I could see my gifts complementing his gifts, you know. So when I joined his band, people were shocked. And when I started calling him the boss, uh, it suddenly became a little bit different because here's a boss calling him the boss, you know? Yeah. So it wasn't just some affectation. It wasn't some kind of joke anymore. Here's a serious guy who was saying, no, no, I'm not the boss. He's the boss, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> Did you like being a boss when you were the boss? Yes and no. You know, I, 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 I do like being in control to, to a large extent. Uh, but I don't, I don't need the spotlight. I don't, I don't crave it. You know, I, I don't really like it. You know, I can, I can tolerate it. You know, and I got quite good at it. You know, in the eighties, I really became a quite a good frontman. Hmm. But um, I don't like it. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't like being in the spotlight. I really don't. I recognize, you know, a lot of a lot of good goes with that. Mm-hmm. You know, like a, a consigliere or an underboss or, or a producer. I mean, if I had to identify myself, I would re- identify myself as a writer-producer, you know? That's what counts to me, is the creativity. I mean, it's fun, you know? It's fun uh, being a rock star, you know? And it's fun being an actor. Uh, but that's not how I... Uh, that's not my... Uh, most satisfying part of my being, you know. Mm-hmm. That's that's sort of the the, the vacation. Yeah, you know, that's the that's the reward. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean. That's that's the fun part. But again, in this, I guess if I had to sum it up, I'm sure Bruce Springsteen had a lot of people telling him what he wanted to hear. You're great. You're this. You're that. You seem to be the one that can tell him what he needed to hear. You don't want this arrangement. Nebraska's not an album for the band. But that's a tough position to be in because, you know, he can start to resent you. If you're right too often, he can be like, uh, yeah, I'm a little sick of you being right. Well, the three fights we've had, I put in the book in great detail because mm-hmm. of that. Exactly what you're saying, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Nobody wants to really hear it, you know. But I, as I said, I felt it was an obligation as a friend to do that. I mean, what am, what am, what am I getting from it? Uh, nothing but, <laughs> you know kicked out of the house, kicked out of the band, <laughs> you know. Well, and you you did you did say at 83 you just you felt he had stopped listening. And so you left the band. That was the occasion when I left. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I left I left I left myself at that point. And it was it was hard. You 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 said you felt like you were being written out of history even though it was your own choice. Yeah, it was it was a kind of a spontaneous move that I felt compelled to do at the time. I'm not sure I really weighed the consequences of it. I just felt like, you know, I need to leave in order to preserve the friendship. 
the friendship was more important to me at that moment than my own career, so to speak. Because I never really, I never really separated any of these things. I don't separate career from the art, you know what I mean? From the friendship, from the band. I mean, it's all, it's all one thing, you know? I didn't quite realize it at that moment until I, it hit me on, on a plane flight to South Africa that I, I, I didn't just change jobs. I just ended my life. Mm -hmm. And I would become a different person at that moment. I, I would become uh, fearless in a way, which I think helped me uh, in my research for South Africa and made me go a little bit deeper than I probably would have normally because I didn't care whether I lived or died. So when you, when you stop caring about living, it has a funny liberating effect on you. Sorry, was was that related to you leaving the band? You stopped caring with you lived or died, or did you, did you just feel you're no more? Well, I realized I had, I had I had worked for 15 years to get mm -hmm. to that point. We just started making money. We we just got we just successful, you know, for two years at that point. You know, River was yeah. the first success. I produced most of Born in the USA in '82, and mm -hmm. I leave. So we had only been successful for a year or two. After 15 years of work, and I walked away, and now what? You gonna start all over again? Which is, yes, that's what I had to do. I had to start all over again. And never, never, never even approached the level of success that I walked away from. We'll be back after a quick break with more from Stevie Van Zandt. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know the fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. 
because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with the rest of Bruce Hedlum's conversation with Stevie Van Zandt. You started doing your own albums, uh, and I want to ask a bit about those. Uh, I want to ask about the song Checkpoint Charlie. Can you tell me a bit about that writing? Yeah, that was a, you know, I had a, each album was had a theme, and that particular album, the second album, Voice of America, uh, the theme was how the government affects uh, families, and that was the ultimate perfect metaphor was the Berlin Wall. You know, literally, you know, politics separating families. Me and Bruce had gone through Checkpoint Charlie into East Berlin, and uh, man, was that scary. I mean, it was the Twilight Zone for real. I don't think we stayed too long, an hour or two maybe, but, uh, uh, and I wrote a song about it, you know, which was, um, are we punishing uh, these people for their fathers' crimes? And all that. It was a perfect metaphor. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit about another really memorable song in those albums, which is uh, St. Valentine's Day? Yeah, that's one of my favorites. It's a recent recent song. I was going to work with Nancy Sinatra, and, and I wrote this song for her, and, and uh, I still hope to do it with her. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure what went wrong at the time, but I ended up doing it with the Cocktail Slippers and... Uh, and then it became the song in David Chase's first movie that his fictitious band was writing. And then I just did it on this, on my last tour on the Soulfire album. We should talk a bit about Sun City and how you brought people together. One thing I, I had forgotten was that it was uh, 
it was a year before uh, Run DMC did Walk This Way. It was kind of the first metal rap song. Yeah, not metal, but 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 rock 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 rap. Yeah, it was a very big issue at the time because, you know, me and Danny first st- started talking. And I said, I want to put this new thing called rap on the record, and he was totally into it. It was one of those things that, that I had I had been very very aware of black artists not being able to express themselves, uh, as opposed to white artists. Mm-hmm. We were expected to express ourselves. That was part of the, part of being an artist. But uh, Marvin Gaye had a you know fight with Barry Gordy, and uh, you know, and then Stevie Wonder had a you know kind of fight for his freedom, and um, Sly and the Family Stone you know got into it a little bit. But it was it was unusual, and it was not encouraged. And I thought, well, this rap thing, this is interesting, man. This is the first time that you know I'm hearing black artists express themselves, and, and I want to encourage it. And so, uh, well, I mean, the whole, the whole, the whole Sun City album is is basically Arthur Baker's phone book, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always, you know, I always make sure I mention all four of us because it literally was all four of us doing it. I mean, without Danny Schechter, nobody would have ever heard of it. Uh, Arthur Baker, it's his, it's his phone book on the record, um, and and Hart Perry, uh, if he hadn't videotaped it. Nobody would have ever heard of it. Because it wasn't a big hit on the charts, right? It was a big hit on TV. Well, radio wouldn't play it. Radio said it was too uh. black for white radio and too white for black radio. Was, uh, I, I, mm-hmm. I, I, had, I had a big meeting with MTV because they were having big problems at the time. They weren't playing any black artists, you know. Sure. And I said, well, here's a, here's a solution to that, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. We've got more black artists in this video. It'll take care of your whole quota yeah, for the year. Your whole year. <laughs> And uh, uh, B and BET, of course, also uh, played it uh, extensively uh, in the black entertainment. But um, but that was it. Radio wouldn't wouldn't play it. You sort of say how the '90s were lost to you a little bit, but then you did a lot of stuff <laughs> during the '90s, which I was reminded of <laughs> writing the book because <laughs> <laughs> you're like, huh? So it's a blank spot in my head, really. You're doing these projects. You're doing. You did your Born Again Savage album. You put together. A Demolition 23, you did the Darlene Love album. And there's this there's this refrain, and you actually mentioned it earlier in the conversation. You would talk about how this is some of your best work. And then the section would always end with, nobody heard it. For business reasons, for whatever popularity reason, you just had this feeling that no one was hearing you in a way. What was that like? Well, it was frustrating, you know, it was a little frustrating, uh, you know, and, and I attribute that to not having a manager. And, and uh, you know, the creative process is, is, is two things, you know, it, it's the content and, and it's the marketing of that content. And they're kind of not two different things. They're kind of two halves of the same thing. And you can create all day long and I don't, you know, uh, but you got to have somebody out there selling it. It's a big, it was a big... Uh, a big flaw, you know, in my life, and 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 I just uh, I tried, I tried, tried to find find somebody, and uh, it just it just never worked out. So I ended up uh, doing a lot of good work. I think that 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 nobody heard. Mm-hmm. You had a conversation with Bruce Springsteen at one point because you were going to play at a festival. You hadn't headlined for a while, and you lost your voice. And he said something to me that I thought was 
kind of fascinating. You said, well, you can tell he's been in Freudian analysis for a long time. Do you remember what he said to you? I had not sung or performed my own music for 30 years mm -hmm. at that point. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm re-experiencing them for the first time. And I couldn't get through uh, a lot of the songs w without crying. And when you cry, you your voice tightens up. And it was just an odd phenomenon that I, I'd never experienced before because you, you realize that you, you didn't have the buffer, you know, the, the buffer of, you know, doing things over and over, you know, the repetition and the re redundancy. And, and you put away the, that raw emotion that creates the song. You, you get a little distance from it. And, and what happened was uh, uh, suddenly I was. I'm thinking about the words that I'm, that I'm singing and, and feeling that that interaction with those chord changes and, and the melodies, and uh, it was just pure emotion, uh, you know, <laughs> and that, in a way that you don't usually experience it because you have that little, little bit of distance from doing it. And, and, and yeah, and Bruce had a <laughs> had a psychological, <laughs> had a psychoanalytical take on it, which was yeah, which was interesting. Did you buy what he said, or was it? Uh, eh. uh, could be true. Could be true. You know. Yeah. You run one of the only channels that a breaks new bands and b plays new music by older artists. So you seem to be the person who might know this. What is next for rock music? The music you love. I don't know. It's it's it's. Uh, uh, I've been spent. I spent the last twenty years trying to rebuild an infrastructure for it, which is gone. Mm -hmm. uh, we we now have returned to being the cult where we started. You know, we've returned to nineteen fifty five. So the the job right now, I think, uh, is for us to try and rebuild an infrastructure that can can at least create a healthy cult. It, it, we're never going to be mainstream again. That was a blip in the radar, an anomaly in, 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 in history, that 30-year period mm -hmm. where rock ruled. We probably belong in a cult, <laughs> the truth is. <laughs> but let's, but <laughs> okay. we're trying to make it a healthy cult where people can make a living doing it. And that's been, that's been the challenge. And what's next for your music? I don't know. You know, every record could be the last. Uh, I, I write with purpose, so I don't... I don't, I don't you know, write all day long. I, I write when I have a, per, a reason to write. And, um, you know, that usually involves a, a record and it usually involves a tour, unless it's uh, something for a, a movie, you know, which is possible, you know. But um, it was very difficult touring these last two tours, 17, 18, and 19, the busiest I've ever been. Six album packages, two new albums, Soul Fire and Summer of Sorcery, and two world tours. But it was very difficult taking around a 15-piece mm -hmm. band and, you know, 35-person touring party <laughs> with, with, you know, I'm sure that's the only time that's ever happened with an artist with no hits. <laughs> you're, you're the only guy who writes a book to unwind. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking. It's been just fabulous talking to you, and it's great reading your book. Thank you, my friend. Good talking to you. Thank you to C.B. Van Zant for taking us through his history as an artist and sharing insight into his new memoir, Unrequited Infatuations. You can check out a playlist with all of our favorite Stevie songs at brokenrecordpodcast.com. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast. 
where you can find all of our new episodes. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Ben Tolliday, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez, with engineering help from Nick Chafee. Our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app if you like us. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like this is this is not right how can a person get killed and no one knows anything I'm Jake Halpern and this is Deep Cover The Nameless Man listen wherever you get your podcasts and if you want to hear the entire season right now ad free subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus plus.